Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon. So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications. I'm an ex-Googler and now help launch new companies and products. And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a datafile or a dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go. Hi, Brian. How are you? I am awesome. Glad to hear it. It's been a pretty awesome weekend. Yeah, I agree. I, we did a little travel, so it's nice to be back in the studio. Yes, yes. Very nice. We we recorded a lot before we, we, we had our bit of travel, so it's nice to get back on the regular swing of things. So when we've been looking at what's been hot in the news with with tech right now. There's a lot. Yeah. And I think there, there always is, fortunately for us, us tech lovers. What we've been seeing a lot recently is some interesting shift in investments that's caused, I know it's caused you to kind of think about, well, where is the value in some of these tech companies? We've seen a real emergence in these type of aggregators, sharing platforms, taking advantage of the gig economy, which gave the rise of these brokers. But then you have companies that have been around for a much longer time that are really tapping into a more consistent value base because they own property items, what have you. And it's an interesting dynamic that's playing out. So I think this podcast is going to be about Brokers and owners then. Yeah. Let's talk about brokers and owners. And I think sometimes with the owners piece, the challengers in the last 20 years have been more on that brokerage side where it's build a cool app, aggregate a network of people, and then share something out there, whether it be gig economy, experience economy, et cetera. So where do you want to go? There's a lot of places we could talk. Yeah. I mean, I think the the first big thing to to think about, well, what are these types of services? Let's just let's just run down through what those are first. So we're talking about a broad swath of companies, right? When right. we're we're thinking about this. So it's it's Airbnb, it's Uber, it's you know, a company like Netflix. So it's aggregating a service. And allowing people to tap into that. It's even Amazon and Walmart, which I know we've talked a ton about, but when you look at it from a real estate perspective, Walmart owns a ton of real estate in comparison to Amazon. So yet another broker versus owner. And it also starts to fall into the, in that scenario, the online versus offline world as well. So when we've seen the rise of extremely valuable companies that live, one, exclusively online, two, get their value from aggregating and surfacing information, or three, create a new economy essentially by virtue of aggregating and outsourcing Uber, these are some really different business models. So let's let's define 
this a little bit. So what's your definition of a broker or an aggregator? And are those two interchangeable in your mind? I kind of have my thoughts. It doesn't, they don't have to be interchangeable. Oftentimes, if we're talking about such a, gr- a broad group of companies, that I think a broker is a better term to describe all of them. I mean, when we're talking about literally what is the commonality between uh, an Airbnb, an Uber, and Netflix, it's, it's really more of being a broker, but they are also aggregating information to make it accessible. That's part of their big value. Well, and if we think about that, let's rewind the clock a little. So some of the early brokers, stockbrokers, uh, insurance brokers, they didn't actually create the stocks or hold the stocks and, and all of that. They actually made it accessible to people that weren't on Wall Street. So they were that intermediary. Same with insurance brokers. They didn't create the insurance. They were brokering it for somebody else. Right, right. And and that's really, when we think of this more flexible broker model, the model that, that lives online as, and is accessible to so many people, that created a whole new value play. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's, let's get specific about one of these matchups, right? So... Airbnb and Marriott have both been in the news in the last couple of weeks. Let's talk about that. Let's yeah. start there. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting what's happening in that space because Marriott, I mean, that's the world's largest hotel company. And they are, are just now starting to get into having home shares, essentially. So doing what Airbnb does, really accommodating the, the leisure traveler, the the traveler that's traveling with family and allowing them to rent a home that is managed by this array of property management companies that they're now partnering with. And it's brand new. I mean, their site isn't even up yet. Well, and and if you think about it though, if I was Airbnb, I'd be kind of nervous about that because Marriott has, oh, 23 to 25 billion worth of assets in properties. Yeah, they have 7,000 hotels, 130 countries. They're, I mean, they're massive. And their loyalty program is huge as well. And now that they can also have the Airbnb-esque offering, their customers can use their points and build on their loyalty program. So it all just fits very nicely together. Well, and I, I'm a loyal Marriott, uh, Marriott guy. So I would say I've used Airbnb a little bit. I've used VRBO, their competitor. One of the major downsides is consistency. And there's not a lot of consistency. I can't use all of the points, the millions of points I've banked over the years. So it's interesting to me. Absolutely. And and the the space that they're looking to fill, having hotel rooms works really well for the business traveler and something that's more like Airbnb is more more appealing to the the leisure traveler and certainly to families so Marriott's seeing this and and responding now Airbnb they've been i mean continuing to be be fairly aggressive with with their acquisitions and they only had 
had one last year, but this year they've already acquired two different companies. What types of companies are they acquiring? For the most part, it's really a company similar to theirs that focuses in a particular market. Okay. More often than not, that's that's who they're they're snapping up. So they're building out services around their brokerage and around their app, essentially. Yeah. Like for example, January of this year, they they acquired a company out of Denmark. So, you know, they talk about that they broker they don't call it the word broker, obviously, but they connect people with places to work and play around the world. Interesting. And they also had an acquisition just a month ago with a, a company called Hotel Tonight, and it's a, a, a booking platform and allows you to get a hotel the same day. Okay. So now they're starting to dabble in the hotel space a little bit in the, the brokerage of hotel space. Yeah. And, and that, you know, Hotel Tonight, that's a similar activity that, you know, your Expedia and TripAdvisor type of travel aggregators perform. And, and that space has changed massively over the past 10 years. The, the value that they're bringing is debatable, quite frankly, if, it, if it's even there, because they're just not, they're not surfacing the best deals a- anymore. The, the model has shifted. So I've watched, and I know you have as well, just by the nature of uh, sharing a TV with me, we've watched a lot of Hotel Impossible. And one of the things that I really take away from that show is that understanding pricing and understanding what everybody else's vacancies are in town is the name of the game. So that data game has always been really critical to making sure that you're pricing what you have at the highest possible price for what the market will bear. And that that acquisition and, and the access to that data is really easy now. And hotels are no longer giving a block of rooms, for example, to Expedia or whomever. They're just able to say, hey, book with us directly. And so that that value is no longer there. And there are also aggregators upon aggregators. So the fees are small fees, but they're starting to add up. So not only are they not getting access to actually lower prices, there are just so many players bombarding this space that you know by the time you're done with fees, uh, anything that looked like a deal, once you get through and you know, oh, I can fly from Boston to Miami for fifty bucks, but my flight back is going to be six hundred dollars. Oops. And that's how they, you know, they get you in. Usually those deals just don't, aren't real. Right. Or you don't get any loyalty points. You also get no privilege to, you know, change any flights or anything like that. And your customer service is at the absolute bottom. Or you get the middle seat and you, you know, have five hour layover, you know, those, those wonderful things. You get the only seat on the plane that has a hole in it and a door that says occupied. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so... Uh, that would be rough. Yeah. So let's get back to, you know, the Marriott and Airbnb thing. I think it's interesting. So Airbnb is one of the few new companies uh, in the new world internet order that's actually making money. So I, you know, to kind of round off, they made about a hundred, hundred million bucks last year on, you know, billions of dollars of revenue. So that's, that's pretty good. That's substantial, but Marriott pretty much prints money at a rate of $350 million a quarter. So 
And it begs the question, where has Marriott been for the last few years? Why did it take them until now to, to cook up this idea of working with property management companies? But I, you know, it's c- clearly not going to be something that is a potential landfall considering it's, it's not going to be the core of their business. But my sense of it is they've realized seeing Airbnb's performance, seeing VRBO, that this is a trend that's here to stay and it, and it connects with a, a user base that, that matters. Well, and it's arguable. So Marriott has something like 450,000 rooms, uh, I think in North America alone. I'm not positive of that stat. I'll have to put that in the show notes. But when you think about it, that's a lot of data. And those are rooms that they control the cost of. That Those are rooms that they have a lot of intimate knowledge about the people purchasing, spending, you know, how, how long they're staying, all of that. So I would imagine that they have much, much more data because they've been at it for many, many tens of decades or, you know, decades at this point. Absolutely. And, and this is something that it's, you know, nothing that's cast in stone, certainly, but Hilton is, is also looking into to doing some kind of home rental business. Hyatt's considering it as well. And, and really the, the notion in the past is that Airbnb, Expedia, et cetera, have just, they really haven't been big competitors until now. So, so this will be interesting to see if these these huge hotel chains start getting into this business, is that going to start to erode Airbnb? The travel aggregators, the game has already already shifted. That that's already been eroded. Well, and when you can say, hey, join our loyalty program, you could stay in a hotel or you could stay in your favorite neighborhood, uh, you know, somebody's house or whatever for a longer stay potentially. That's going to take a lot of business, I'm guessing, from Airbnb. You would think, and it is the trust factor. It's it's the ease of having different options. It's trusting that level of quality. It's having loyalty program, and the the biggest risk we all know with Airbnb or VRBO, you just you just don't know the quality. You're hoping that the reviews you read are accurate. That something didn't change since the last person was there, but you never know. Right. And if you think about it, right, so Marriott was actually late to the game on uh, basically timeshares, right? But they got there and then they actually started taking a pretty big chunk of the market. And that was really to, to get in on the whole family vacation type of, of you know, consistent vacationers, essentially. So it, it's what is very interesting with all of this is these different ways to get at families who are vacationing, and even if it's not a a whole family, just people who are looking for these vacations and consistent areas. And the the business travel space is, is, seems to be pretty consistent. No one's trying to solve for, oh, how do I engage with the business travel in a different way? The hotels seem to be, be solving that very well. Yeah, no. So this is interesting. So this is a place where if I was an aggregator or a broker, I would probably start to worry or come up with, you know, an adjacent model. Right. And, and the thing is with Airbnb still might win out over Marriott just because of volume and Marriott's going to have 
certain quality standards in place. And, and maybe by virtue of that, Airbnb will still have a niche that, well, maybe they have plenty of places that maybe aren't quite as nice and polished, but it's, it's the deal that a family is looking for. So it all works because Airbnb has almost 5 million rooms listed. Marriott has 1.3. So when you think of it that way, Airbnb's reach is, is huge. Do you think some of this will come down to regulation? Because let's face it, Airbnb, Lime, Uber, you name it, the new economy companies have just kind of jumped into the market, not necessarily cared so much about regulation, kind of did an end around, and now are running into a bunch of headwinds. It's probably arguable that Marriott's already on the radar of some housing board or a standards and accommodations board, right? Because they're already scrutined or scrutinied to that. <laughs> is that a word? Jeez. Scrutinized is a word though. Scrutinized. <laughs> it's okay. I know, I know what you're trying to say. It's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. You know, details. Just making up words like <laughs> Dan Quayle, for God's sake. Dan Quayle. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, potato, potato. <laughs> so let's, let's get it back on track. Okay. Yeah, or if not, must. <laughs> or not. <laughs> so I think we talked, we talked this, you know, around a bit. Let's go into a different kind of category. Let's talk okay. about, let's talk about Tesla and let's, Uber. Let's talk about Tesla and Uber. So Uber is is interesting. I mean, many reasons. They also are going to IPO later this this week. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Stay tuned, everyone. But uh, what's interesting with Uber and why Uber took off like it did was really a matter of where we were just in our economy. So I was customer 51 on Uber. Congratulations. That's really cool. It was very different back then. A moment, a moment in history. So really with Uber, so the Great Recession happened, right, to 2008 and the job market tanked. So the gig economy had a chance to develop and then flourish. So Uber is there. Perfect timing. People were excited to get in on this, this new way of earning money with a flexible schedule, all of the, the benefits of, of the gig economy. And they were making, making decent money and happy with it. And what has happened over the last few years is, well, one, there are additional competitors in the space. So they're vying for Lyft and yes. all of the others. So they're, they're vying for drivers. And also the job market has improved. So we now have the highest employment rate than, that we have had in 50 years. It's pretty incredible. So not only the job market's healthier. Maybe people don't have to rely on the gig economy and just take work where they can get it because they can get a full-time job with all of the benefits that come with a full-time job. And they're starting to use Uber as maybe a little supplement or ditching it altogether. I, my Uber usage has actually gone down quite a bit. Why is that? Mainly because in many cases I go to an airport it's like they've cordoned them off into some weird section of the parking garage. Especially in Las Vegas. Especially it's in the La- worst. Las Vegas. 
we were there the first week that uh, that they started doing Uber in Las Vegas, and uh, it was a shit show from day one. Let's just <laughs> it call still it is what a it shit is. show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's Las Vegas. Come on. And so I think as these regulations and as problems, you know, started to occur, and obviously the taxi medallion owners definitely have a lobby, right? And they have some pull. Everybody's waiting in queue there. And they, next thing you know, they see everybody going over and just jumping in a car. They complain. Right. And now almost every airport that I, I've been to in recent days has a section that's for, you know, ride share. And it's usually a little further away than the taxi. So there are some cases where if the taxi line's not too bad, I jump in. Why? Because I could pay with a credit card now and it's pretty darn easy. In the past, that was a mystery to yellow cabs or, or cabs in general. And with Uber, it was pretty easy, you know, and many of these cab companies are starting to get apps now. And yeah, that, that's some of it. Yeah, it makes sense. And it is, it's always going to be a matter of convenience, convenience for the customer. And, you know, when you have Uber and Lyft, now that they're becoming a little more mature, their investors are, wanting them to actually start turning a profit, the pressure is on and the climate really isn't helping them, especially when you're seeing these kinds of, of really high churn rates with their, I don't want to call them employees, their, their contractors, right? Their drivers. And there, there are even companies now that can actually help find drivers for Lyft and Uber because the churn rate is so intense. I mean, sometimes they even have up to a 500% churn rate. So when you think about the money that is wasted, or I guess maybe it's just necessary, but in onboarding new drivers who just churn, that's significant. Wow. I didn't know it was that high, but I, I've always seen so many of the drivers have both Lyft and Uber so I'm guessing they're just playing both fields. Oh yeah, we and you know, they everyone has their different take on you know, which company they like better, but usually they're they're ping-ponging between the two. Okay, so tons of competition. So Lyft went public about a month ago. Their stocks down almost 20%, came out a little bit higher out of the IPO, but now it's back down to earth. You know, some of that is in their books look a heck of a lot more healthy than Uber's. And so in Uber's S1, which is basically their public announcement of IPO, they came out and said, we don't think or we don't know if we will ever be profitable. That, I mean, that's, that's like Pets.com 2000, you know? And they're hedging on the backs of Uber Eats and Uber Freight for them to have any hope of making profit. So when you're diversifying like that, it, it seems like there could be some pitfalls in the assumption that these subservices are going to eventually carry the company. That seems like a lot of risk, right? And I'm and we're not here to give stock advice, but no. when <laughs> certainly I certainly <laughs> not. When I when I think about it, right? That's a lot of risk. And sure, they have a sufficiently large network, 
But if a network is not profitable, it's not sustainable, right? We've seen a lot of things that haven't been profitable. Absolutely. And, and I think with, with Uber, it, it absolutely is this vision for the future that, that isn't that near of a future. Cause really the, uh, the CEO of, of Uber and I, I, always completely butcher saying his name. Anyway, basically what, what he envisions as, as the future is most people won't own cars. You'll, you know, hop on your electric bike or your scooter, you'll summon cars. And he's kind of envisioning this new state that ownership doesn't matter. And it's all about just accessing this, this share economy. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to stop you right there. So ownership doesn't matter unless if you're the person that someone has to own the asset at some point, whether it be that company or whether it be an entrepreneur that goes and, you know, whether it be real estate, you know, and somebody goes and buys apartment buildings, somebody has to own it. So let's insert Tesla. So Tesla, very different company than a traditional car manufacturer because they are building the hardware. They are building a lot of the AI. They are building the software and they're able to update it over the, over the wire, right? Or over the air, I should say. So when you think about it, Elon Musk has been saying, hey, we're building cars to be an appreciating asset, not a depreciating asset. Because we're going to be able to continuously add value to cars over time. And that's not something that traditional auto manufacturers have been able to do. So that's really interesting to me. The other thing that he's been talking about that I've been saying all along should be kind of the new gold standard is if you take that gig economy and you apply it to an autonomous something, right? Now you could take that smart vehicle and when you're not using it, your garage door opens, your Tesla drives out, and it goes and picks up a fare somewhere and it's making passive income for you. So when stuff like that starts happening, this is where I argue a little bit. I think people are going to pretty quickly say, I want to own the asset because it's making passive money. Right. Well, and also then we have this shift because Uber right now is is ta- is tapping into this idea of the gig economy and also the the sharing economy. So yeah, you take the drivers out, well, the gig economy's gone. Now it's a share share economy and the the value to Uber is still in the network, but the network is just obviously operated in a completely different way. And so when you think about it, right, Tesla owns and Tesla's, you know, building somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 400,000 cars a year now, almost. They've had them out for almost 10 years now. So they've got a pretty big network of actual landed assets out there. And if they can, over the air, start to upgrade some of these, maybe some sensor changes and stuff. They also own some of the charging stations and infrastructure. They also own companies that make the solar right? So that you can lower the cost of that. When you start thinking about it, 
they own that whole infrastructure top to bottom and really control it. So they're not really a broker, but they're going to start going into that broker space. And so I'm thinking that Lyft and Uber's jobs, they're going to, they better be selling a lot of Uber Eats because I think that companies like Tesla are coming for them. Uh, Agree. And also when you think of the viability of a, an autonomous network of vehicles, you need to have places where the fleet can be deployed from as well. So when you think about that, your comment about having superchargers in different locations, having, I mean, right now it's mostly sales showrooms. So it's not as if those are, are huge and can hold a lot of vehicles, but it's still property. It's still physical locations across the country. So that is something that's a significant investment that's already underway for fleet management that Uber doesn't have, Lyft doesn't have. So it'll be interesting to see the, the, how the future state starts to, to roll out. And Tesla's much farther along with their autonomous vehicle than, than Uber is. I mean, Uber is investing heavily in it, but it, it, it's just not, not quite there. Yeah, and Uber is also losing money hand over fist at at the rate of you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Granted, they're making billions on the top line, but when it gets to the bottom line, they're losing quite a bit. And so, you know, a couple challenges with this, right? Obviously, you could make the argument that hey, if autonomous vehicles go out and they charge, at some point they or they go out and they they do services. They're going to have to get charged at some point. You know, do they come back and send you a message saying, plug me in? How does that work? You know, the other piece is wear and tear. The other piece from there is how does it actually compare cost-wise? Well, I ran some math, and at $2.50 a mile, which is, you know, like a major city taxi rate, um, based on that, you could probably make between ten and twelve thousand dollars a month after you back out all of the major costs of owning a Tesla. Right, right. Yeah, and 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 the thing is, I mean, when we think about where this is all heading, did I say a month? I meant a year. Ten thousand dollars a year. Okay. Right. So, if you think Model Three, that'd be like a four to five year payback. Yeah, yeah, and and when you look at the vision of the future between these two companies. Uh, Tesla certainly has the more audacious vision for the future and where Uber wants to end, I shouldn't say end up, but Uber's grand vision is really kind of the next step on Tesla's much grander vision. So, you know, if we were, if we were betting, my, my bet would be on Tesla. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think they've got, they've got some intermediary issues to, uh, to get past. But, you know, as far as the long-term vision, I think it's going to be interesting. And then you start to add in all of these other companies like GM, Ford, Vol- you know, Volkswagen, you name it. Um, I think I read somewhere where 25 companies right now are working on level five autonomous vehicles. And so when you think about that, here's the really interesting part, though. 
the only one that's really building their own autonomous AI engine, so to speak, is Tesla. So they have built all of their own compute and processing. Most everybody else is using NVIDIA's engine. And right now, as it stands, Tesla's engine is a heck of a lot better. They say it's going to be better for three to four years. That's a pretty major leap in technology time. Well, and and that's just case in point that they're playing the long game here. So long that sometimes people are, you know, especially, you know, investors get, get a little scared of, you know, is this, is this crazy? But that kind of boldness and preparing for the future that will get you so far ahead of the competition that when that day comes, everyone's just left in the dust. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. So yeah, I I don't think I would want to be a broker or an aggregator in either the shared ride space or anything like that. I think that's going to be a a road to probably nowhere, unless if they come up with some other aggregation points. Agree. Agree. Especially with ride sharing and, and another point that you just can't ignore with the demographics of our country, 70% of people live in rural or suburban places and they still want to own their own car. So yeah, maybe that car will be autonomous someday, but they probably won't want to share it very much. They need their car. So, you know, you just have to kind of ground all of this in the composition of the user base and and be real about it. Well, and, and to talk about that, right. That also becomes an equation of how far are people's houses from average services? Mm-hmm. You know, if it takes 35 or 40 minutes to get to Home Depot, for instance, or to the nearest Walmart, which that's highly unlikely because I think everybody lives within 20 minutes of one. But when you start to get to the fringe of that, that cycle time to be able to go pick someone else up get them to a potential service that they want to go to becomes really sufficiently long. So they need to be able to, you know, take that out of the equation. Right. And so the vehicle is going to be less available. Absolutely. So let's shift gears and talk about a totally different category and, and stitching all of this together. So Netflix and Disney. That's completely separate. And different. Yes. But the same. So yeah, we're, we're drawing this comparison among so many different industries and it's, it's, I don't think it's a stretch. I think it's creative. It's a tangible asset, <laughs> tangible asset so, versus an intangible. Yes. What we call as tangible is maybe, it certainly has to change among these different, very different industries. But when we think of Netflix and Disney, the game has changed drastically in the last couple of months when Disney has announced that they're creating their own streaming service. And guess what? Netflix, you won't have that content anymore. And that's been a significant part of their programming. So now it's again this kind of play between Netflix, their roots being an aggregator and a point of access to then getting into the, well, we are going to start creating our own content. So 2013 house of cards, 
talk about like an amazing first, first attempt of creating original content. So that was, that was Netflix. And then Disney is obviously, I mean, the king of creating original content and they're starting to get in the streaming space. So now it's all starting to meet. Yeah. And, and you know, that's really interesting. And when you think about it, that was an access issue. So Netflix fixed an access issue. Same with Spotify, same with, you know, Apple Music, the whole nine yards, right? They've all been fixing access issues. Well, and same, and when you put it that way, that's such a great way to compare across all these categories. Airbnb fixed an access issue. Uber fixed an access issue. When you now have the access, well, if that becomes just table stakes, the real value then shifts. It's no longer about access. It's about the tangible thing. It's about the the room, the house. It's about the original content. You know, it's about the actual car and what it does. So you describing that way, I think absolutely crystallizes like what, what this commonality is among these very disparate industries. Well, and this is also, let's take it to Main Street, Wall Street, all of those streets, right? Walmart. You know, and I know you're doing the happy dance over there because you just nailed it home. But, you know, Walmart, Walmart wasn't maybe as accessible to all different types of products. Amazon had an opening, you know, traditional bookstores, not didn't have every book that you could ever imagine. Amazon fixed that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so when we think about Netflix and Disney, and how they're, I, I don't want to say they're meeting in the middle because they're not, they're, they're still very, very different, but with Netflix, their growth is really in developing original content. So they are spending, they're estimating to spend $12 billion this year. Um, actually, no, it's 15 billion, 15 billion this year. It was 12 billion last year, and that's going to keep increasing. So that's incredible. That's the a race lot of money. is on. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Amazon is obviously a huge player in creating original content. So the fact that you need to invest in that is, is where the real value is coming in. Well, and that's becoming a really pricey game, right? And when you look at uh, Netflix specifically, they have built out a whole lot of content. And when you look at Disney, they have a ton of properties. They've got Marvel. They've got Star Wars. They've got all of the different animations. They've tested and proven that stuff out over, you know, 60, 70 years, right? And they've had some failures too. Amazon's just pumping out content. And I don't know if it's good content. I mean, there's very little that, you know, and I guess this is obviously completely subjective. There's very little that I'm like, wow. That's amazing. You know, there's there's a few glimmers of hope, but they're spending a lot of money to try to spend out of not having any properties for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Amazon rate that I've seen is around $7 billion. Um, so, so Netflix is certainly outspending, and that, that could certainly be why. But, you know, when we think about the future for entertainment streaming services... Is the next big play going to be some kind of deal maker 
that aggregates all of the different streaming platforms because it's becoming really fractured. I think they call that a cable company. No, please don't say that. Please don't say that we're going full circle. That's what they did. That's what cable companies did. They took all of these different networks and they put them on one cable. But I don't want the network. It needs to be something more sophisticated that, that, you know, surfaces it by genre or you can actually pick the shows that you want to watch and pay by show or something like that because, oh, deliver me from cable. We were some of the first cord cutters, I think, weren't we? Yeah, and we just cut Netflix last week because... Well, now we're on to HBO. Why do you you need, you know, why do you need something you're not watching? And that's the beauty of the flexibility with it. Well, and when you start to look at the content and you look at, you know, Fox and Comcast and Disney and all these companies that are going to pretty soon be taking all their content off of Netflix, they better hurry up and innovate and come up with some darn good shows. And coming up with darn good shows, that's not like writing a new app or writing some code or solving something mathematically. It's very subjective. Well, and it's also just, it's so fascinating to see that, well, what was it, three years ago where all the major networks said, oh, we don't need writers. Let's just do reality television. This is going to be great. And and sure, there, there was a lot, of, a lot of interest in that, but the real big big successes have been with, with great, great content. I mean, look at Game of Thrones. I am a huge Game of Thrones fan, hence the move to HBO right now. Winter is coming. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It better it's not, ama- it's it better amazing. not be. It's amazing. So, so yeah, I mean, I think when we, when we think about the overall value play, when we have access, then it's, it comes back to, okay, what are we accessing? And is this a cycle? Right. So now the game is, is really centering on what are we accessing? How do we make that better? How do we serve the user, the customer in, in, a, in a better way? Because they can access whatever they want. Well, and so here's the interesting part. I think about it from the data perspective, right? I think that obviously Netflix has a ton of data and a ton of data on us. Uh, but when I see my recommendations, it kind of keeps falling into the same genre. It keeps falling into the same it's stuff unintelligent. And, it's, and it's not yeah. that intelligent. So I might argue, well, Disney doesn't really have all of that intelligence on people. They probably do though, because they've got box office receipts, right? In some cases. So I don't know, just something different they don't to have think it. about. They can build it. Yeah. What, what their competition isn't so far ahead that that's a big deal. So I think in closing, right, so these are three just very different examples with new and old companies, but I think the general story and theme is that being an aggregator or being a broker may not be enough if you don't start to also mix in owning some assets and having real tangible things like some of the traditional companies because the traditional companies are getting to that barrier to entry and they're doing it really well and they already have a big network. Yeah, that that's a great way to summarize it. And it'll be interesting to see what what happens with, with Marriott's program. I'm excited to try it out when the site's up. Can't yeah. wait. I'm gonna yeah, be checking I am it as out. Well. So all right. Well hey, I guess you know thank you for 
for all the good mental stimulus on this one. <laughs> this this is one of those topics that I knew there was some kind of common thread here, but it was you had to just keep following the thread <laughs> to figure out exactly where it was going. So yeah. thanks for uh, for walking walking through that. Well, thank you, and I'm looking forward to expanding on this because I think there's just so much that we could talk about on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share. And if you have a question or an idea that would be great for us to include on the next episode, we would love to hear from you. Just send us an email at hello at datamist.com. You can also send us a note on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. And finally, want to give a big thanks to our sponsors, Infonomic Data and Uprise Partners. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next time.